Hello and welcome to Crackpot Theories, the podcast where everything is plausible until proven otherwise. My name is Sinead and once again this week I have a really amazing guest. I am so, so hyped for this guest, um, Mr. S.A. Bradley. Hello, Sinead. Thank you so much for having me on. So, S.A. Bradley, you are the perfect person to actually bring into this podcast because uh, not only do you have your own podcast, uh, Hellbent for Horror, just talking exclusively about horror films, but you also technically wrote the book on horror, literally. <laughs> well, one of them, uh, and, but thank you very much. So, yes, I do have a, a podcast called Hellbent for Horror, and it's a podcast about everything related to horror. I talk about horror as art and social commentary, and I talk about the movies and the books and the stories that shape me and, and those that shape horror as a style and a, a film art form as well. I like to say that I'm here to remind people that they used to love horror movies, and they secretly still do. And I did write a book called Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy healthy and it's a love letter to all things that go bump in the night and how horror not only reinvents itself to reflect each generation's anxieties but it can also be healing as well as thrilling so I love uh, speaking about how movies uh, affect the culture and how the culture affects the movies and how those things actually uh, help us cope with uh, some of the uh, the stressors in our lives that we uh, rarely do get to speak about or if we were to speak about them without allegory and metaphor it would smell like burning tire rubber so <laughs> I love what it can do for us yeah well you know with somebody who has such a learned um, approach to the horror genre I have to ask, how did you end up here on this very, very silly podcast? What what went what went so wrong in your life that you ended up here? I I thought it was crack as in C R A I C, and I thought, oh, this will be fun, and it ended up being instead what it is. No, it's it's a lot of fun to be able to hear people's passions. I think that's why I love uh, podcasting so much. It's kind of still like the old Wild West of the cowboy movies mm. where uh, the rules are very, very small and uh, yeah, the, the graveyards are filled <laughs> by those that did not make the cut. But uh, you're able to speak about anything that you so wish to. And I love how uh, people find a way to take their idiosyncrasies and turn them into art. I think we all have the ability to uh, create art. And I'm happy to when I talk about my podcast I say to those that are listening that this is the beginning of a conversation I really want to start talking about this mm. stuff, and I'm hoping that they create their own podcast and that has happened once or twice good stuff so you you, you are spawning little podcasters as you go on yeah resentments right <laughs> <laughs> I create a resentment and they create a show Okay, well, um, the theory that we're going to be talking about in this episode um, is a theory that I've been trying to find the perfect uh, guest to talk about with me because there's so much ground to cover with this theory and it's going to be, it's a real deep dive. Uh, We're going to be talking about The Wicker Man. Mm -hmm. Love the movie The Wicker Man. Uh, Now, we're we're talking about the one from the 70s, of course, right? Uh, The Robin Hardy, not not the one that was made in 2007 or so, correct? We can make some time for how to get burned later on. Um, Oh, dear. (laughs) No, because um, my theory actually works well for that one as well, as well as a couple of other films, um, as we have discussed in writing, but not in person. Um, Yeah, I I think this is going to be very scary for you by the end. So brace yourself. 
<laughs> well, holy corn rigs and barley rigs, we're we're ready to we're ready to roll upon this. This is great though because I, I'm a big fan of full car, and I do consider mm. Wicker Man to be one in that proud lineage of full car, uh, and uh, this idea of the Earth being something that is a living entity and the old ways somehow bubbling up into our modern world and contradicting that modern world. Uh, I mean, all the way from Blood on Satan's Claw, which does not talk about the modern world, but we have things like Wakewood now, uh, the Hammer film Wakewood, uh, and many others, uh, the Hallow, uh, which was really good as well. And there were actually quite a few Irish films. Uh, I think I noticed that Irish, and of course UK, but uh, Irish films for the last decade or so have really started to edge towards this idea of the old bubbling forward and uh, old ideas uh, creating new anxieties or uh, destroying uh, the uh, the proprietary nature of modern life. And I think it's very interesting. Yeah, well, do you know, for us, I think um, our mythology is always with us. It never really leaves yeah. because we're surrounded by it all the time. Um, I live in rural Ireland um, and, you know, I'm in front of one old ruin and behind one old ruin um, there's ghosts absolutely everywhere. I've been in the most haunted place in Ireland a couple of times. It was great crack. Um, it, it, it's um, it's something that is very close to us. But on the other hand, the theory that I've come up with actually runs antithesis to this because mm-hmm. what my theory is is that the commune in the Wicker Man, Summer's Isle, the civilization, they're actually a very complicated hit system. They send specific people to this island in order to take them out. Everybody's in on it. Now, the people that live there, they don't believe that anything's going to happen with the harvest if they burn the wicker man. They don't believe in any of the cult stuff. All of that is just for show. It's pageantry. Their entire social life is built around every now and then somebody goes to the island and they don't come back. That's what they're there for. That's my theory. All right. So it's like Fantasy Island from the from the 70s, except uh, there's a head count uh, people die and they never return up the island yeah now it's so that's a very sorry that's okay it's a very in... it's a very interesting idea now what i have to tell you uh is i don't know if you've ever heard of uh, uh people from philadelphia pennsylvania but i'm i'm from outside of philly so mm. i am a real arguer <laughs> <laughs> And I, I hear things, I'm like, oh, really? Well, let's just talk about that. So I can't wait to dig in to this idea that the Wicker Man's a complex hit operation. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. makes people disappear. Um, okay, yeah. Well, now this is specific people. Uh, these are people that it would be very difficult to take out under other circumstances. So, you know, let's say for argument's sake, you want somebody dead. How, how do you go about this? You know... You might think to yourself, right. okay, I don't know how to shoot a gun. I don't know how to murder somebody. I'm going to have to outsource it to somebody else. Now, if you've got mob connections, that's great. You can pay somebody to do it. But the thing about it is, if you're trying to put a hit out on certain people, they're going to become, first of all, very suspicious. And second of all, probably very aware that somebody's out to get them. <laughs> okay. All right. All so- right. The, the answer is hire an island. <laughs> like, no. there's the, 
that's big, bigger than the mob. It, it's it, it's a different corner of the mob. It's not mob affiliated at all. Um, right. What what this is is it's just it's set up through you know connections. Um, right. Now the thing is, once you get people acclimatized to a certain lifestyle, uh, you know you get that whole sunk cost fallacy thing where you know we've built a life for ourselves on this island we've had our children here our children have friends here um our entire economy is built into this and we can't just uproot that and leave so they okay kind of, so you're you're saying that this is like the second gra- gross national product for this island is murder this is their main product because um I, I, I did some of the um, economy work on this. Um, it's Supposedly, okay. it's a self-sustaining community. Everything is done in shop. They have their local shop. They've got uh, their local producers. Um, yeah, every, yeah, everybody seems to be involved in apples. Um, and then everybody goes and spends the money that they make from the apples in the local pub. So they have a self-sustaining economy, <laughs> supposedly. But the thing right. is, apples are difficult. They're murder so much easier. <laughs> well, you see, with the with the apples, it's unpredictable in an awful way because you can have all these orders with people overseas, and then something happens to your apples, and your crop is unsellable. Like just farming in general is kind of unpredictable and often very difficult. Um, and in all, also, it only brings in about eight thousand pounds per year. And that's the entire year. That's an entire year's work for one small island. Whereas the average contract killer, depending on who they're coming after, you can charge between 3000 or 15000 per hit. Uh, and if I may ask the question, I would love to find out where you got those figures. Um, I googled it. Um, there's nobody around here that I know that, um, that grows <laughs> apples. But I do know a lot of farmers, so I know what their annual income is like. I know the problems that they have. Um, You know, it's a thing where you'll have a family farm where everybody grows the crop. But then, you know, two or three people in that family will have another job and they will be funneling their money back into the farm. It's very rare for people to make big money unless it's one of those big factory farms. And they only really make the money by cutting corners. Whereas... Summer Isle, it's kind of a, it, the way that they're set up, it's real traditional farming, it looks like. And they keep saying, oh, our apples are failing. We're having problems with our crops and, you know, what are we going to do? And I can well imagine that happening because in, on an island, the weather changes very quickly. It's not actually a great place to farm full stop. Of course, uh, we're having that here in California as the environment is changing. We have Napa wine, which is very much uh, beloved in the world. Uh, and because of drought, and uh, which is causing the fires and things such as, there's a huge impact. So uh, the very terrain of uh, income, that anything that comes out of the earth is very susceptible to that, and I uh, and I certainly get uh, your being able to figure out the, uh, the the amount of money that someone might make doing that. I was talking more about the between three thousand fifteen thousand pounds per target. Oh How yeah, you found that one. Like, what is in your library? Okay, yeah, so um, what kind of books are there? So, um, yeah, a little disclaimer before I go any further. Uh, Once again, I have to explain that um, the people who make crackpot theories do not endorse contract killing, have never (laughs) considered contract killing. Um, Contrary to what my Google history will tell you, I do not 
I am not looking to have anybody killed. But yeah, my, my Google history is severely dodgy. Um, there's a couple of different sources that I found this on. Uh, depends on who you ask, really. Um, like if you're going for a base rate and exclamation points, hitman, and we're talking somebody who thinks they're very tough and could probably kill somebody if they had the money. More on that later when we talk about kill list. But they might charge a low ball amount, like 3000 because to them that's a lot of money. And, you know, that's kind of where you get street level crime, where, you know, it's, it's, it's one gang member taking out another gang member or paying somebody to take out another gang member. Um, where it gets to 15,000 is we're talking more personal hits. So, you know, spouses, uh, political rivals, maybe um, business rivals as well. And for that kind of thing, you have to go digging around on the dark web and you can't guarantee that you're not just going to find somebody <laughs> who's going to take your money and then never actually do anything with it. Um, it it's all a mixed bag, but um, I, th- I think it's the real... almost as cutthroat as the Apple business. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, we can't rule out that this didn't originally start over apples. Um, and might have. I mean, obviously, this seems to be Lord Summer Isles. This is his island, and he has he has most control over it. And he co- quite clearly comes from old money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and, I... And Sergeant Howie is disrespectful to the apples. So this is one of the... He throws them around every so often when he sees baskets of them. Oh, um, well, this is going to lead me on to my next point. Um, the whole fact that they had to send Howie out to this island. Well, first of all, who sent him out to the island? He doesn't, he's not a very likable person, is he? Right. He's not well liked by uh, anybody that we see, but he also seems somewhat nondescript. It doesn't seem like he'd be the kind of person that someone would put a hit out on. So I'm interested in seeing where that comes in. But yes, he's brought in because uh, he gets an anonymous letter to his, uh, to the police station. Which is very interesting. How did they, you know, why did they pick him out of all these people? Who did? Who picked him? Well, do you know, funnily enough, when I got talking um, about uh, serial killers when I when we did the Batman episode many moons ago, um, we part of our point was that um, people who are successfully nasty people, they don't go around advertising it. On, you know, right. on the face of it. They disappear into the crowd. It's why the likes of Robert Picton got away with his crimes for so long. First of all, he targeted people that nobody would miss. Second of all, he right. just he just looked like a normal, you know, schlubby, slightly weird pig farmer kind of guy. <laughs> right. So, I mean, how he seems okay. You know, he's very, very Christian. He's very, um, uh, God, what's the word? Evangelical? I Con- yeah, he, he certainly has a self-righteousness to him. He feels he's on the right side. But he also seems to have this real undercurrent of anger that's ready to just kind mm-hmm. of explode. Um, and more on that later. But, I mean, we see him with a fiancé, and they seem very happy. Um, but you can imagine, this fiancé, she hasn't lived with him. She maybe doesn't right. know him that well. So she thinks that she's, 
she's getting into a good relationship. But I mean, behind closed doors, he could be an absolute monster. We don't know. Then again, she won't know yet because two years he hasn't had, uh, he hasn't uh, consummated anything. So there's uh, a lot being made of that, that he's keeping himself uh, clean and, and pure for the wedding night. And, and so she doesn't know what she's getting into. No, she doesn't. And I mean, let's say if he turns that whole rhetoric around on her and finds out that, you know, maybe she's had one or two boyfriends in the past, what's he going to do about that? Now, there's also, um, I mean, we can't necessarily slander this guy's character based on things we don't see. Maybe it's just that somebody wanted his fiance for himself and wanted him out of the picture. You know? So... That's interesting. Uh, so we're looking at what we what we know from the film, uh, mm. and uh, I'm, I'm looking at the uncut version. Uh, I'm assuming that you looked at the the fully restored version, where it starts with him getting that letter, basically inside of his uh, police station. We see how in his fiance in the church, you know, singing very uh, prosaically uh, along with uh, the the music, the hymns, uh, and in that he has a moment where he walks in on two people making fun out of him, the other, the other officers mm. and he uh, he makes a little aside to uh, one of the men who gives him the uh, the letter which it looks like he opened which is awfully nice by the way yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, he he says something like yeah uh, there's a place of a den of iniquity over in that on that island it's a place you'd probably like which is, uh, you know, a, a nice little slam on him being uh, less than pure, I guess. Mm. Who do you think? What, what do you think from the information that we get from the film? What do you think is going on there? What, what do you? Uh, who do you think is putting this hit out on him? Um. Well, we have a couple of possibilities. Um. I mean, it could be somebody that's related to the fiance and knows that he's quite you know not a very nice person underneath it all now we could also say may you know there have been cases where somebody who looks like an upstanding pillar of the community somebody in a high position of authority has turned around and used that power to abuse people and that's also a possibility we don't know because we don't see it but it has happened so it could be somebody that he's wronged in the past who is setting this up you know? Okay, for the sake of keeping this thing going, I will go with that and, and say there uh, there's corroboration for you on this if you look at uh, things like the psychopath test, which mm. was, uh, I believe, a book that basically said uh, there are many different indicators for a sociopathic behavior and that CEOs of major companies score very high they may not yeah. be killing people they score very high and there was a documentary recently on netflix that uh, here in the america at least uh that uh is called crazy but not insane and they speak to this woman psychiatrist who uh basically saw multiple personalities uh forming in a lot of uh, people who were psychopaths or serial killers and that it had to do with abuse and it had to do with injuries or deformities in the brain which is highly controversial yeah but what, where it comes in interesting is that she interviews this fellow who was a executioner they said you know judges don't pull the switch for the electric chair uh the jury doesn't uh 
put the hangman's noose on. Somebody does this for them, and if it had to be done by the judge, perhaps there'd be less executions. But they said, weirdly enough, there is a guy who's an executioner for hire out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He's an electrician, and he had, uh, in this documentary, they talked to him, he had, uh, I guess, executed 23 people Mm. in different states. He drove around. (laughs) He was the only person who felt absolutely no remorse whatsoever for what he did because he felt he was on the moral high ground. But there's this thing of where he goes, oh, yeah, my grandchildren, they're only four years old, but they go, you know, light them up, Grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) There's things like that are being said. And so there is something to, uh, to the theory that people who are of an ilk that they wish to cause harm find themselves in positions or occupations where they can cause harm and hide under the radar. So police officers who, Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, as we all know, there are uh, people who have stalked and murdered people who are police officers. So there's something to be said. Maybe Sergeant Howie, you know, he has that severe haircut and he's got that jaw that could crack a walnut. Uh, He might be uh, hiding a lot of things underneath all of that. Yeah, and you see, the thing about trying to take a hit out on a police officer is that the people who are generally given money to do this kind of thing would be people that he would be if not know it would be people that he would be aware of because these would be people who already have criminal convictions you know right right so So, uh, i don't do you really feel that sergeant howie's a really good police officer I mean, I, I never got that. He reminded me of if uh, I was in the military and there were people who were soldiers. And then there were these guys who shined their shoes and had the perfect hair and all of that. And they were just administrators. They were basically kiss asses. <laughs> and so he hits me as just like this person who's not necessarily a great inspector. He just it seems like he's a stuffed shirt. Absolutely. But I do think that he does have a heightened sense of awareness when something is going on maybe it's not the right kind of awareness but that's where the the cult situation comes in the whole situation with the cult is that they're trying to knock your normal senses out of kilter to make you more easily killable more it leads you more into a trap because your other senses aren't working the same way they used to and i mean Howie, I think, is the kind of guy who probably would get that sort of um, slimy feeling if he knew he was being targeted and would take the appropriate steps to, um, you know, look into this, uh, beat up a couple of um, people on the street uh, to get some information off of them, find out who's fingered him. It's too much of a risk because then regardless (laughs) regardless of whether Howie is liked or not at the police station... You know, taking out a hit on one of them it could be like taking out a hit on all of them, and then suddenly you've got more attention than a hitman really wants. Um, now, the the kind of the model that I used for this was um, Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman Killer. Um, okay. Now, what was kind of great about him, uh, well, I say great, but what made him really efficient was that he never had an allegiance to any one person. So he worked for one mob family, then another mob family, and then basically anybody that needed somebody dead. And he just didn't declare any affiliation for any of them, really. Um, So nobody would see him coming, essentially. 
But if you're looking, for, if you're used to looking for these kind of ne'er do wells, you kind of know when you're getting targeted. I think. Um, right. Even so, so throw an entire island, an entire village of psychopaths at somebody to really throw them off kilter. Well, I think as well, um, a hit a hitman is going to charge a lot more money for a highly visible target. You know, the amount of money that you charge for hitting a random person on the street, as opposed to the president, you know, right. that's going to be a different different price. Absolutely. So it may, in fact, have been cost effective because that money will go a long way on Summer Isle. So, may, <laughs> you know, it's it's right. it's not as risky. You send somebody to the island, you know that the island is going to do the job. Whereas if you send a hitman after it, you don't know if that hitman's going to come after you afterwards. You know? Right. Okay. So there's an island of hitmen, basically. Or or it's a hitman hiding in a very elaborate dinner theater. Uh, that, But I'm assuming everybody has to get paid, right? So that's where I'm kind of going... Well, eight, uh, say it's 8,000 or 15,000 over, uh, you know, and say the island is, will be generous and say 30 people. It's not a very big island. That's only like 500 pounds to take a, a guy out, including kids and everybody working on this. So it, it seems like there's an awful lot of work to, to, to take this guy out as opposed to, you know, just getting a Yabo drunk and saying, hit that guy on the head really hard <laughs> and having it. It ends right there. So I, I love the idea of the pageantry of it, though. So I'm intrigued to see where we would go with that as opposed to, you know, I'm assuming that you're not uh, saying that everybody got paid. Well, maybe everybody got paid the low end, 3000 And if that's like 3000 over 30 people, that's, two, uh, that's a quarter of a million pounds mm. uh, to, to take this fellow out. So I was wondering, which, which direction was that? Is it like, uh, are they... Uh, dinner theater and there's a killer amongst them or, or no um, no, what, no what's so going on they yeah. all have a part to play in this everybody oh, does their own right. little job because this is a co-op society it doesn't operate mm-hmm. by the same economic rules as the rest of us do you know for them they get maybe a little bit of pocket money out of the hit but really the hit money it goes into the land it goes into the homes it. it goes into the infrastructure uh, and I mean, when they're not killing people, this looks like a great place to live. It looks like a great place to educate your children. You get to have a lot of outdoors naked fun. Um, but <laughs> you, don't, you don't get to have that in normal society. So, And I would say, now this is probably, this town is a good bit bigger than you estimated. I'd say it's about 230 people, maybe okay. spread across 30 families. But they all know each other. And the thing about the kids being involved as well is that's part and parcel of the wicker man itself getting burned is because it puts a distance between the person getting killed and the people watching so that they can almost pretend like it's part of the theater that that they're doing. Um, But I'm going to go into a little bit more detail now about how this hit actually works once how he gets to the island. Now, everybody everybody is in on this. Everybody, from the local teenagers to Lord Summerall himself to the naked people in the forest, they're all in on this. Um, so what we're kind of going with here is that they are deliberately trying to mess with his senses. They know stuff about him. 
and they know specifically how to push his buttons. Um, everything they do is designed to make him angry and uncomfortable. Now, first of all, you've got the landlord and right. <laughs> and the landlord's daughter. But of course, let, let's be fair. That is not his daughter. He is gay as a box of Christmas. Um, <laughs> and, you know, well, the, the actor is Lindsay Kemp. He was openly gay and he was right. openly camp at the time. And I'd say if he was a few years younger and they suspected that Sergeant Howie was, you know, I think they suspect that he's more misogynistic than he is homophobic. But if they suspected he was more homophobic than chauvinist, then, you know, the landlord would be walking around in a crop top and booty shorts and it wouldn't be a pub, it'd be a rave. <laughs> it all makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, you're, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was listening to the audio commentary of The Wicker Man and they're talking about how uh, Robin Hardy says, well... You he wasn't our first choice. <laughs> the actor who was in the pub. And also that 90% of the people that are on camera at any given point in that film are extras. They're actually locals from the mm. islands that are there. And so, uh, you know, that kind of plays into your theory as well, that there would be a very naturalistic approach to uh, the uh, the killers <laughs> they get to stumble about and make some mistakes but they, they have the local flavor so it tends to work out mm. but you know the thing is right um, now over here in Ireland uh, obviously you've been here twice so you know about our habits of sitting in the pub and singing um, yeah. We, yeah, which is a, a big thing in Ireland but the thing is very few of our pub sing songs sound that rehearsed Right, exactly. Uh, that's one of the things that I was saying. It's like I, it's like murderous dinner theater, right? It's like you're not only going to kill this person, but you have a stage show that goes with it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, we have to piss him off by talking about the, the, the space between her left toe and her right toe <laughs> in a song. And, you know, it's perfect because they're all sitting in the perfect positions to do their own little parts. It, it's... it's um. It's almost like they've had rehearsals where they have gone over this. It's like, you're going to sit there, you're going to sit there. And then when we see him coming, we're all going to get into position. You start up with the fiddle. You start up with the, you know. Um, and of course, um, Brill Elkin's character, um, Willow, oh, she yeah. is perfectly fine with the entire bar calling her a whore. Um, right, right. You know, and I mean, there are people who are perfectly fine with that kind of thing, but they're far and few between. And and, and not from your father, your alleged father. Yeah, ex- exactly. It, it, it's it's slightly suspicious that her dad is actually okay with this and that everybody seems to know that he's okay with this as well. But again, it's just pageantry. It's not designed to necessarily be realistic. It's designed to... to it's the starting point of getting under Howie's skin. The second point comes when they send that boy, the, you know, the young boy up to Willow's room for the night, yep. and he gets to witness this. And there's a sing-song that goes with that too. Just, you know... And a Walt Whitman poem. Yeah. Like, uh, reciting Walt Whitman uh, wanting to be with the animals uh, over people while two snails copulate. It's a great film. It's just a great film. It is, but then as well, I mean, it's, you know, speak a little bit louder. Just make sure that Sergeant Howie is listening and knows exactly what's going on. 
kind of thing you know we just have to make sure that that happens and then you, you've got the couples that are out on the lawn having a, a a good time as he's walking out of the pub and he doesn't approve of that either um i i mean i i think you could probably throw people a few bob and they'd do that for the crack <laughs> You know? right? An entire lawn full of people. Yeah. Uh, you may be on something here that uh, I, it sounds to me like you're saying that they're getting him out of his rhythms, kind of like a boxing maneuver, where if you get the person emotional or angry, they lose the ability to focus and they lose the ability to, uh, to think clearly. Mm. And the person who is using strategy is the one who wins and he'll just be flailing out of a rage so they decide to go right at his religion because yeah. that's the most important thing to him absolutely and not not just his religion i think his religion is more of a cover than anything for his own sense of kind of moral purity and you know the chauvinism that does come with that so i i think this this blatant display of sexuality in front of him is already designed to kind of knock him off his feet and um, i mean it was the technique that was kind of described in the shock doctrine as well, where, you know, you have to put people in the most uncomfortable position in order to render them weak and therefore controllable. Um, and that's that's just kind of their initial punch. And it gets right. it gets worse as time goes on. Then he finds out, oh, the church has been uh, desecrated and these people are pagan worshippers. And that's, right. that's another blow and he hates it. And then, of course, everybody is messing with the order by saying, ah, we don't know where Rowan is, but she's probably grand. You know, (laughs) because they know she's grand, but they also know that this is, you know, them being so vague about everything is just going to annoy him even more. So do you think the reason that they're they're fumbling constantly, like in the very beginning, they're, they're... They're basically saying, oh, well, you can't come here. It's a private island. And he's like, of course I can come here. I'm on police business. And they're like, well, and they him and ha. Then they show him the, they, he shows them the photo and they say, oh, we don't know anybody of that name. And they say the mother, he says the mother's name. They're like, oh, yeah, oh, you mean, of course, yes, yes. Uh, now I know who you're speaking of. Uh, is is that all because they think that that's going to enrage him even more, that he's going to become more bulldoggy as opposed to giving him what he wants? He has this really weird trail that he has to follow and that just gets his instincts up? Yeah, absolutely. This is um, it, It's just to get the hackles raised before they can hit him with the real punch. Um, <laughs> because it is the most annoying thing for police officers when somebody obviously knows something but they're not saying that they know something. And then when you catch them out in a lie, they go, oh, oh yeah, I forgot. It's your one from down the road kind of thing. <laughs> I just think about how much work this is. I'm getting so tired of <laughs> people of Summer Isle. <laughs> the exhausting thing of like, oh, here he comes. Hurry, you sob naked over a tombstone. That's going to really piss him off. <laughs> <laughs> but here, here, here's the thing. Um, they've had at least a week to prepare for this. They might do this kind of thing maybe... Four or five times a year, and they it's like all immersive theater. Yeah, and they all know the drill. And for some of them, it's good fun. You know, you've probably met people who actually get great joy out of just needling people unnecessarily. And I, sure. you know, I'd say there's a fair few of those. You know, you can see at the town meeting they put up their hands and they go, "Can I be the one who says that I don't know the child, but that I do know her mother?" Because I'd really like that part this time kind of thing <laughs> right yeah you know and like, yeah, they're, they're sitting there 
they have to tailor it for every person. So it's like, oh, okay, this this time remove all the Labor Party stuff, and this time bring in like the the tombstone that says, uh, "Here lieth Beach Buchanan, protected by the ejaculation of serpents." I mean, it's very specific. <laughs> it, it is, but this is tailored for him. They probably change it up a bit depending on who's coming over. Um, but this is specifically tailored towards Howie. And I mean, you know, I've been a cosplayer for many years and I have done <laughs> some fairly insane things for the sake of my craft. I could right. we- I could well imagine living on an island, dressing up as something and just tormenting a police officer for the crack. They wouldn't need to pay me. I do it for free. <laughs> well, yeah. You're living well off of the, the, the orchard that is going to get better because you kill off these guys. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, and it's, you get a bit it's, of it's a na- you get a bit of naked frolicking in the woods every now and then. Who doesn't want that? You know, right, right. And that uh, was a bunch of university students. They just like uh, for the movie, they actually brought in uh, university students and said, "Would you guys get naked and just play around here?" And thought, "Oh yeah." So <laughs> you're, it's it's proving the reality of the the production is proving your point. Mm, there, there you go. You know, there are some people who are up for basically anything, and I mean, for the children, I think because the children are too young to know really the gravity of what they're doing, they just think they're having a great time. You know, that they're just, there's this one guy who's come to the island and they just have to kind of tease him as much as possible. Don't tell him anything. You know, right. pretend that you don't know your best friend, Rowan, uh, and pretend you don't know exactly where she is. All of that. Um, now, obviously, these people, they don't believe in the, sac- the sacrifice. They do enjoy the theatrics of, of everything. But they also, if somebody is out on the island, the moral quandary is, if somebody has been sent out to the island, they probably reason, okay, well, this person deserves to die. Right. You know, because normal people don't get sent out to that island to die. And oh, then, spend this money, right? Yeah. yeah, if somebody spent all this money, they must really want him dead. So who are we to argue with that? And, <laughs> and you know, Howie doesn't exactly prove them wrong because he's really unpleasant to everybody, bordering on violent in some cases. And um, he... You know, and then when somebody comes to look for Howie, if that's going to happen, they'll just say, yeah, he, he was here. He kept shouting about a missing girl and she wasn't missing. We knew where she was, but he was running around. He was attacking people. He called the landlord's daughter a whore and then he ran off towards the cliffs and we haven't seen him since. Do you think he's OK? Because this is the thing about rural locations. Um, and I can confirm this living where I am. I mean, I can think of a good few places nearby where somebody could go missing and not be found. Um, one, right. Once again, crackpot theories does not endorse um, making people <laughs> disappear in rural areas. Um, but I mean, in, right. in particular, there is that um, there's the river in England. I forget what part of England it is, but it's the most dangerous uh, body of water in the world because it's. It looks like the most beautiful Lord of the Rings style babbling brook. But it's got this underwater system of caves that are completely unmanageable. People fall into that and they never come back and you can't send anybody in to look for the bodies because it's just too dangerous in there. Oh, wow. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Or horrible. Depending upon which way you're looking at it. 
Yeah, but it, it's amazing because it, it's it's really deceptive. And I think that's the case with a lot of very rural locations where uh, that part of the land has just been completely reclaimed by nature. There's hidden pitfalls. So the locals will know the area very well and they'll say, oh, well, he went up the cliffs and I mean, there's loads of caves up there. He could have fallen into one and broken his leg. He could have fallen out to sea. He could have fallen into a sinkhole and drowned. All of these things that happen. It's like we warned the children not to go there. The, that kind of thing, the risk assessment thing. And said, we, right. we, he said he wanted to go search in the caves. And we said to him, you can't do that. It's dark now. And we'll go look in the morning. But he insisted on walking over there alone. So that kind of thing. It's so easy for him to just go missing and for the police to just accept it because of the location. And that's the thing is, it's not necessarily even the people that are causing the death. It's the location. That's the real hitman there. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right. I'm I, 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 I'm sitting here thinking about how much how much this uh, this is such a, a diabolical scheme and how well prepared everybody has to be because you know you mentioned the Ice Man before and and one of the reasons that he was so uh, uh, so successful as you had mentioned was that he had no alliances but that's also because he was a single person and every extra person that's brought in is another fail point for for things and i've never worked in any business that i've been in including software development where there isn't at least three people that you're like why are they even here i don't even understand what they're doing they can't do anything right how, they can't even sharpen pencils and it's like how did they get all the right people in the summer aisle because i'm thinking of like he walks over and there's a kid crying yeah, and he goes, what's wrong? And the kid goes, I was supposed to go to the mainland, but my mom says you have to die this weekend, so I can't go. <laughs> Why can't you die? The, the, the thing is blown because the kid's not getting his way. So it's like amazing to think about how much would have to go into this. And what would they do? Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is uh, they keep throwing stuff to make him inevitably go where he needs to go they give him just enough cue, uh, cues where uh, he finds the uh, the grave and I thought it was really interesting that, uh, that everybody is named after trees right mm. birch or beach and ash uh, and so uh, you're like oh ash is an interesting name but beach I've never met anybody named beach uh, but they have just enough clues uh, the re- the hair in the grave and things like that to make him know that something's afoot to keep him going but what if at any point uh he's just like you know what screw this place i'm getting my plane and i'm leaving uh, early on even do they have like that really big guy that's in there with the beard like just bludgeon him or how do they get him back on the, on the course to, to have this thing done and does it have to take three days I guess is, is another question there's so many things there's so many my obsessive compulsive brain is is swimming right now on, on the ideas that you brought up oh no that's okay that means that I have successfully broken you down so far um, right. <laughs> which is a point in my favor really um, so to <laughs> To address your first point, um, what happens if go, if you know somebody's not playing the part? Something like that actually does happen. There is a scene uh, when he takes the place of the landlord, and he dresses up as the landlord, and then he gets said uh, he goes and is part of the parade, and Christopher Lee's character starts giving out to him because he thinks the landlord is drunk, and. 
Christopher Lee's character, Lord Summerisle, he's been so nice and congenial and relaxed and everything up until now. And then all of a sudden he's just kind of hissing, you're drunk again, you're going to ruin everything. God, you're terrible. Shouldn't have trusted you with this. So Lord Summerisle is cracking a whip. I think for the children, if you notice when the children have to interact with Howie, they're very shy and they're very giggly because I think their parents have told them, you know, this is the man, don't talk to the man. And kids are kind of nervous and giggly around police officers anyway. So I think the cha- the chances of a child rumbling the whole thing are probably quite low. Um, because Howie doesn't really talk to enough people to give them a chance to ruin it. The real important players, uh, so the landlord, the landlord's daughter, um, the big guy with the club, uh, Lord Summerisle himself and the school teacher, they're all playing their parts perfectly. Everybody else is just told to do this one thing, don't mess it up, and then you can party for the rest of the year. So right. they're all being quite careful. Um, and yeah, that is, that includes the children. But I think the children also don't realize that they're really killing this guy. Nobody's explained that to the, to them just yet. They just think they're playing a great big joke on this guy. And you know, children, they love playing jokes and playing games. They probably think this is all great fun. They're just making fun of this this policeman, and everybody's doing it. So they're you know, it's going to be great crack. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay, uh, you, you're, you're convincing me so far. So let's just continue on this because uh, I, I'm intrigued when we get to the idea of how they decide to kill him. Uh, once again, I, I just keep thinking a really big rock. Just get somebody with a really big rock and hit him on the head and it's over. But instead, there's this 35-foot uh, pyre that's shaped like a person that is made. So what, what is that all about? Oh, well, um, I have a great explanation for this. Um, But first of all, I want to just kind of... um, The moment where um, Willow does her whole naked seduction dance. Right. You know, you'd think that maybe um, with somebody who is as uptight... First of all, is she actually planning on seducing this guy? Probably not. This is just another ploy to get him to lower his defences. But the other thing is Willow realizes she's not in any danger at all because if he does burst in and she doesn't want him in there, the entire pub is listening and Howie himself knows that. The, right. Like, if she screams, the entire pub is probably going to come up there and beat him to death. And I mean, if somebody comes looking for Howie afterwards, they can say, yeah, he was acting real hostile. And then he attacked the landlord's daughter and he said she was up for anything. And we heard her screaming, so we ran up there to defend her and then he went running off. We we kind of beat the crap out of him first, but then he just escaped towards the cliffs and we haven't seen him since kind of thing. Yeah, and we, we even wrote a song about it here. This is <laughs> Landlord's Daughter Part 2. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> yeah it's just you know all of these things they're planned in such a way that Howie really has nowhere to go I mean he is trapped on the island because they um, in one scene remember they sabotaged the plane so he can't leave the island even when he wanted to right yeah so he's not going anywhere so the next thing he does is he starts you know breaking into a couple of homes to see what's going on and so they eventually kind of do lead him by the nose up to the cliffs because that is eventually where he's going to end up they didn't quite plan on him being in disguise when it happened 
but they had a fail safe for when that did happen. And Rowan her, uh, herself, she knows how to play her part as well. She says, take the hand of the policeman and run with him and just, you know, play along and everything will be fine. Um, now, the 30-foot pyre, the wicker man itself, um, there's two reasons why that's the way they decide to kill him. They were going to burn it anyway because burning big wicker things are, is cool. You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it's a cool thing to look at. Um, secondly, it's because, again, it puts some distance between the victim and the people on the ground. If you're, you know, if you're looking at something from a distance, it disconnects you from the reality of it. So, like, right. if they if they were watching somebody beat his head in with the rock, you'd get a few of the villagers getting really uncomfortable. But because they, they can't really see him, they can't hear him over the fire... You know, they can disconnect from the fact that he's dying. And they're singing a nice song about it and everything. So it all feels very (laughs) jolly. Um, But then the last thing is, uh, forensics being the way it is, his remains are going to be mixed up with the remains of all the animals that he was burned with. So they are not going to be able to tell that it's him. (laughs) Okay. So so it's not only a sacrifice, but it's also a smokescreen. Yep. Or, uh, for for uh, forensics. <laughs> yep, covered up all the evidence. And, you know, that's why he died. And then the next time they do it, they'll do it all again, but they might do it in a different way. If they, The next person they send, you know, might be a politician of some sort. And um, they'll make sure that they tempt him with, like, leaving loads of money or drugs out that he can steal surreptitiously. Right. But it's all basically the same thing. The island will come together to take this guy out because normal circumstances will not work for this person. And I would love to see uh, some other versions of this where it's not, not the pagan idea where it's like, yes, uh, we, we set fire to a, a ballot box while the politician was in it. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how this would work. Uh, and uh, I, I could just see them sitting there going, it's like, uh, if you remember Mission Impossible, it's like they get this mission and I could just see them like sitting in the drawing room going, okay, this guy does this and he's also very religious and he's a chauvinist. Well, we can go in a whole bunch of different directions, folks. What do you think we should do? And it's like, I think we go the pagan route. <laughs> I see. I think we all want to get naked. It's that time of the year. Let's just. There's probably like five people who are like, everything is pagan, right? No matter who comes. And like, oh, let's get naked again. No, no. <laughs> we don't get naked this time. No, no, no. We should. No. It's just not important. But but I love that that uh, ejaculation of serpents, <laughs> that tombstone. We should bring that out again. It's always a crowd pleaser. Will you leave it alone? This person isn't involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you did mention uh, the other wicker man that was made with the Nicholas oh, Cage. Yes. Okay, so I have an explanation for that too. It's the same system, but it's built in a lesbian separatist commune. Okay. So what's happened here is that, um, I mean, all around the world, there are lesbian separatist uh, separatist communes uh, where the women all come together and they choose some sort of an industry. They might sell some of it, but it's mostly built to be self-sustaining. And they're all over the place. This one chose bees because they were in a particular area where they could work with apples and work with bees. And there was probably some sort of yonic symbolism there that they found really appealing. And they had a couple of cursory men around, you know, and they're mostly kind of older men. And 
so when they lure their victims and the two girls in that at the very end are showing specifically luring in victims and when they lured in howie they kind of say to the men okay so you have to look like you know we're we're like we're really taking advantage of you and you're all miserable because the women have taken over have these real hangdog expressions look just really wretched because that's gonna that's gonna make officer howie really annoyed um kind of thing because you can't use those same tricks on Nicolas Cage's version of Detective Howie. Now, the fact that he's also Detective Howie is pure coincidence. These things do happen. Um, But he's not going to be bothered by the paganism. He's not going to be bothered by the rampant nudity. Uh, So what you want to do is you want to just annoy him by hinting that all of the men here are really downtrodden and that uh, the women are going to do to him as soon as they get a chance. So he has to get into a bear suit and punch his way out. Right. Bear suits are, I mean, Midsummer does the same kind of thing. The bear is just one of those uh, symbols. Mm. (laughs) And and not only uh, that, but I love the idea of uh, the... The, the bees being some kind of ionic symbol because I know so many people now that uh, weirdly enough are becoming beekeepers uh, to try and save the the bees here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. There are so many beekeepers that I know and it's like I could just, any of them could be a hit person. There's no doubt in my mind. Absolutely. And you see the great thing about um, taking out a hit on people with bees is they don't leave any evidence and you cannot put a bee in jail. Um, There was was a whole episode of Black Mirror about robot bees that they reprogrammed to take out hits on people. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Somebody saw that and said, I think that this is based in fact in some some strange fashion. We're going to make it real. (laughs) Um, Well, um, moving quickly on because um, I, I... I'm conscious of how much time we're spending on this uh, particular film because we have other films to discuss here, but we'll go through them sure. kind of briefly. Um, you mentioned Midsommar. Um, Midsommar yeah. is much the same, but it's not necessarily a hits in particular. It's that these colleges all around the world, now every college that you go to will have a certain quota of um, students from other countries and um, a lot of the time they're Scandinavian stu- students. Um, and I think right. that the, these students go around and they'll pick a few people at random that they just feel like the world is better off not having. So it's for ah. them, it's more of an ideological thing. Everything else is just pageantry. And I also think that the two people that uh, did the cliff jumping at the start, mm-hmm. um, right. they are highly sophisticated fakes. Okay, I thought you were going to say they were like uh, donors for the, for the universities that no longer want to give every year. They're tired of getting those letters. And they decided to jump off a cliff to stop getting hounded by their, uh, their fellow university. No, I think in the cutaway scenes, um, you know, I am very unfazed by gore. So I watch all of these things head on and mm-hmm. uh, tend to examine them for minute details of how they did that and I say you know somebody like myself and somebody like yourself who knows a lot about horror films if we were given the chance the materials and the money we could probably come up with a sophisticated enough fake to fool somebody who's not used to seeing people die more on that later when we talk about kill list Um, right 
But again, this was a whole thing of they wanted to shock these people and find out how they react so that they could isolate them. And originally, like, I mean, all of the students that they lure to Harga in that film were really arseholy. We, we don't know about the British couple, but they we don't see them for long enough to determine if they're arseholes. Right. And the American students, except for Danny, are arseholes, though. We can agree on that. Right. You know? Yes, yes. They're selfish, self-involved, um, culturally disrespectful, all of those bad things. Now, do they deserve to die? Probably not. But at the same time, you know, this is their ideology, not mine. So, you know, this is... Yeah, right. <laughs> this is just what they do. And Danny was originally just going to be collateral damage because she decided to come along. But when they realized how isolated she was and how much she needed a support community, they thought to themselves, new blood. We can convince her to be one of us because she hates she, these people as much as we do. It's a recruiting tool, I see. <laughs> it's, a, it's like they don't deserve to die. And they certainly don't deserve to die by having their lungs pulled out of their bodies and kept alive <laughs> on ropes. And so yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, a a bit of a nastiness that they get involved with. What about the people who are uh, part of uh, the commune that they say, oh, by the way, here, take this drug. This will make it unpainful for you. And they still set them on fire and kill them. I mean, uh, what, what's, what's the reasoning for that? I think those are people who committed crimes within the community. They weren't chosen at random. They were chosen specifically because they had done something. And they went along with this because they were thinking, okay, well, maybe the May Queen will choose the other person to die and not me. Um, but she didn't, and they had to go into the thing in the end. So I think they've they've done something. And so they're stand they're stand up once they realize. Well, you know, I'm I'm caught. I may as well take my punishment by being burnt in a barn. But uh, well, you know, that's a very salt of the earth group that they've got there in Hagen. Yeah, well, this is their way of kind of policing their own members. And I mean, originally, I'd say that the guys probably thought that they were going to experience a painless death. Because that was what had been promised to them. But then they only found out the last minute was a false promise. And, you know, these things happen in cults, unfortunately. Um, You know. (laughs) Yes, yes, they do. (laughs) Um, Now, a really interesting one, actually, to talk about is um, Cannibal Holocaust. Um, Which, you know, I wouldn't call it a good film by any respect really Uh, i have a hard time watching it because of the actual animal death on screen right and because despite being a gore hound and i'm actually a vegetarian and a big animal lover and i can't you know real death is something that i i can't do Um, and something almost every horror fan has in common Mm. Uh, there's very very few we can watch people get flayed in whatever way in films well of course we know 99% 99% of the time we're not watching real death but uh, animals we just have this thing about innocence you know the the, the idea of uh, animals getting killed for entertainment just drives us insane absolutely yeah and so I mean I have watched it a couple of times and whenever I do if I know this that particular scene is coming up I put a hand in front of my face and I kind of get on with it but I think cannibal holocaust is another example of this hit system this one is less sophisticated though because what they're essentially counting on is the fact that the tribe 
lives outside of the rules of normal, well, normal, um, it's normal for them, but they, they cannot be prosecuted by another country because these people were on their land in the first place. But at the same time, the tribe knows that they are getting sent people and those people are not expected to come back. Now, the tribe... <laughs> okay. Uh, that's uh, that's stretch- uh, not that you haven't stretched credulity before. <laughs> but this is like... So, the, the, the hidden tribe gets a candy gram? How do they know that people are going to be coming that they need to kill and eat? Oh, well, I mean, the whole Mondo Kane set of films were big at the time, so probably there was all sorts of documentary makers out there. Um, and all it really took, these also were very young, very brash, very uh, naive people. Yes. All it really took was somebody going to them, do you know, I, I've heard of this tribe. They're out in this place. I mean, it, it's really isolated and secret, but here's how you can get here kind of thing. Okay, so so basically you're saying it's the equivalent of someone taking the sign that says danger piranhas away from the pond and saying, hey, why don't you go wade through there, knowing that they're going to get eaten by these cannibals if they actually go to them. Normally people wouldn't go there, but they're being deceived to go there. Completely. I, and um, do you know what's really funny is one of my very favorite uh, film, uh, film history anecdotes is when... Um, Werner Herzog had to work with Klaus Kinski in a very isolated place in the Amazon and the two of them had so much friction that the leader of the tribe that they were working with actually offered to kill Kinski for Werner Herzog and he had to say no we need him to finish the film (laughs) yes yeah I mean there you go you you have corroborative evidence right there because that, that is hilarious that that actually happened and I think they had someone get bit by a snake, right? And they had to cut somebody's leg off. I mean, talk about a bad film set. Oh, completely. And then, you know, um, the fact that he filmed Le Soufrier on an actively exploding volcano and nearly got everybody, including himself, killed. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, we could do an entire podcast about the exploits of Werner Herzog, one of my all-time oh, yes. favorite people. Um, but just moving on, I think the problem here was that the native tribe actually underestimated how nasty the film crew were and should right. have killed them a lot quicker. But at the same time, they were kind of like, okay, well, how far do we have to let this scenario play out? When should we make our move to kill them? And, I mean, part of the shock is when the film crew attacked the native girl and then later found her um, impaled, that was faked. And we know, I mean, yourself and myself, we probably know how that effect was done. And, I mean, this tribe is not stupid. They can probably fake a decent death if they were given it a little bit of thought. But, like, okay, we want to make... A bicycle seat. If they have a bicycle seat laying around, yeah. Yeah, um, not even a bicycle seat, but a a cushion on the end of a stick. You know, pop it up up there, get the girl to hop up there. Because she's going to want to make them feel really, really bad about what they did. So right. the, this is what this is what they did. They set that up to shock them and make them less on their guard. And uh, this is great too because it's the uh, it, this is so meta. You're talking about this stuff being fake, and of course, uh, Diodato was uh, put on trial because he tried to make it look like uh, maybe these uh, actors disappeared by having them literally 
disappear for a while uh, and then he gets put on trial and he has to beg them to come back and say look I'm, I'm alive and this is just an effect and this is how we did it so there is this very strange meta thing going on that you're putting this in as a mirrored reality hit kind of deal absolutely yeah um, and now that leads us on to finally talk about Kill List um, now you were the one who actually brought this to my attention because it actually hadn't occurred to me before but I wrote it into the theory because it actually matched up so well um, what made you think of Kill List when I brought this up with you I, I always felt there was a uh, um, a genetic connection between Kill List and Wicker Man I felt that Kill List was kind of like a uh, modernization of that film because it uh, mm. deals in this very strange uh, concept of ritual uh, and uh, there's the idea of a mystery in the center of it where uh, people have to go uh, in, in uh, Wicker Man you have someone who has to find a missing person and in Kill List you have people who have to finish a hit basically to complete a plot and what we have in these is it hit me that both of these movies are about ritual hiding in plain sight and mm. what would it be like if you realized that you were living in a ritual and how we really are uh, here in the united states uh, people pledge allegiance to the flag in the beginning of the day uh, at school and things such as uh, the way that we get to work is a ritual the system of freeways is a ritual and you hear that these things were created by a group of people early on I don't want to sound like Illuminati no. type of fellow or anything well, you're but in the right the podcast point, yeah there's a lot of, uh, of uh, belief out there about uh, certain reasons that certain roads were created and where you live uh, I know many of the roads go around ferry mounds because it's better to go around a ferry mound than to tempt fate and go right through it and maybe something happens so whether or not people believe in it they prefer not to, to tempt fate so I like the idea of where for me I was thinking of kill list leave summer isle that it has branched out as opposed to it being, oh, bring the island to you. It has actually diversified and the uh, bring you to the island, that is. Now the island comes to you. Or there has always been this group of people in these spots that are keeping ritual going. And whatever the reason, the dark machination is, is anybody's imagination. And so you have in, in uh, this movie, which I, I always look at Kill This as like a mixture of point blank and the Wicker Man, but it's also like, don't look now. It's got this really weird uh, symbolic representation. There's images that are con constantly being repeated. So it starts as one thing where it looks like a, a nasty hit movie, and then it gets a little bit weird, like it might be some kind of strange thriller, and then all of a sudden it goes off the deep end, and there are people in robes <laughs> chasing people through the woods, and everything seems to have been planned, where anybody that they're coming up against that they need to kill, the, there's what, three people, there's the, the uh, librarian, uh, the, the priest, priest, and I think someone who was a member of parliament, right? Yeah, he's an MP. Um, which yeah. yeah it's um like a senator i guess um but yeah somebody fairly high up in the political chain of command uh yeah well one thing i think about hit list is that you know the wicker man took things quite slowly um uh -huh. kill list started things off with a bang and really dropped 
the targets into the the frying pan essentially and um, but i think this was necessary because i think the system that's going on in kill list it's built to take out the most difficult targets and and um, the guys in this uh, gal and jay um to explain to anybody that hasn't seen Kill List before watching this, uh, probably you should pause now and actually go watch it um, if you have a relatively yes. strong stomach. Although, you know, gore-wise, it's not actually that gory, I don't think. I, I no, don't... It, ha- it has a... a it's the, the mood of it is more disturbing than, than the gore. When the gore does hit, though, uh, it has earned uh, the right to be that grotesque. Yeah. Kind of like... Uh, uh, now that you started talking about this, I've got a Serbian film in my head as oh, well. Oh yeah, because there's this whole thing of all of this being done basically just to have more bodies to desecrate at the end for another film. It's just such a dark and despairing idea. And this is kind of like, well, we're going to take out these hard targets, but we're also going to kill off the people who have done this. We're going to cover all bases by making them also part of this weird right that uh, is way over the top. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know, with the whole right, again, I think it's a lot of pageantry. I think this is a bunch of people who are more connected by things that they're involved in, um, secrets. Now, I don't think they're necessarily like really dark secrets, like the kind that you'd only find on the dark web, but, you know, people getting caught up in illegal activities and everything. But I think really crucial to this theory, um, Gal and Jay who are these two guys, they're supposedly their ex-army and they're now working as contract killers. The problem is that they are useless contract killers. They are terrible at being contract killers. They make so many amateur mistakes. And uh, I am not a contract killer. Uh, I know a lot about contract killers through research, but I swear I'm not actually a contract killer. Um, nobody's going to believe me after this episode. <laughs> but it's just the, the little things. Not, you know, telling your wife what you're doing. You know, not having a safe house to run to that isn't immediately obvious. Using your own credit card or your own bank card and then making right. yourself immediately conspicuous to the person working behind the front desk by not having enough money on that card. That's the kind of thing you check before you take a job. In fact, you don't use a card. You pay cash and you use a false name. Obvious stuff. And the film starts off, they're reeling from a job that went wrong. Of course it went wrong. They are crap. They are really, (laughs) really crap at being contract killers. But again, I think this is part and parcel. They were given a job somewhere. They screwed it up. But because they're contract killers, they're now a liability. So they're too dangerous to be let running around. Um, Now, one of the first things that they do is um, they start off kind of slow. They unnerve the targets by... um, They unnerve Gal and Jay by giving them a person to kill and the person thanks them before they're killed. Again, they made another amateur mistake. They didn't shoot from a distance. They got up right close with the guy. They should have staked out a tower block, shot him from the top of a building, then ran. They shouldn't have been close enough to him to hear him thank them. But I think the cult knew that they were going to screw this up too by making this amateur mistake. So 
what I think is the hits that they're being given, they're easy hits. There's a priest, a librarian and an MP. None of these people are very highly protected. They don't go around with bodyguards. They're people just out doing their normal thing. But these are also people that have committed crimes that will that are being threatened to go public. So the cult is giving them a way out. They're saying, okay, you're going to die. But if you play your cards right and you do what we tell you, it's going to be a nice, peaceful death, non-violent, very quiet, very quick, and it'll be over in a couple of seconds. We'll send somebody to sort that out for you. And that's why the priest thanks uh, Jay when he shoots him. Because it's... So, are you saying that this uh, kill two birds with one stone thing where they need to kill off this priest and the MP and the librarian, they also have the targets of uh, Gal and... um, Oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the name of the other guy. Jay. Yeah, it's... Jay and Gal. That's two two three-letter names. Very strange. But uh, the... uh, Is it that we're doing two birds with one stone or is it that they have to have these people killed uh, to get to Jay and Gal? No. Uh, That's where I'm confused. Well, what I think is going on is that they have an actual roster of people who they know a lot of information about, a lot of very incriminating um, information about. And they say to them at the start, okay, we're going to give you an option here. If you survive, then we'll let you live your life, but we'll always have this to hold over you. Or we can have you killed and we can have you killed painfully. Or if you play along with this, you will have an easy death. So they have a roster of people that are involved with the cult in this way and who are sticking with it on the chance that they might actually survive this and come out of it. This is where you, you get the people that are running after them while Gal and Jay are shooting. Is right. There's a half chance that because these guys are such useless contract killers, they're probably going to shoot and miss. So Right. So that's the reasoning. That's like, well, we're going to make this easy for you. We're going to send incompetence to kill you. <laughs> not necessarily that's... not necessarily incompetence but you know you can imagine that the job that they screwed up was probably more difficult than shooting a librarian you know right. perhaps you know perhaps. and and i mean if you're given a choices you're going to die either way and that is certain we're not going to tell you when and we're not going to tell you in what format it's going to come but you've got a choice you can die quickly and painlessly or we can send somebody in uh, with a spoon to beat you to death for the next 12 hours. Right. You know, like... So, uh, I think it's important that we let people know that the, the name, the librarian, is kind of a euphemism that this person has uh, what we assume to be either snuff films or some sordid sex tapes that they should not have, and they have a whole bunch of them. So they may even be blackmailing people. We don't know. So it's not like this is the librarian at the corner who, oh, you yeah. know, just demanded a late fee and then needed to get taken out yeah see do you know i'm getting off track because i i just keep coming back around to the fact that uh, gal and jay are so terrible at being contract killers but this this is a big point actually is the stuff that the librarian is keeping he's keeping that out in full view and um, now there's a little bit of a fact is because it's implied that they have snuff films um that you know when you look into snuff films in actuality well i mean technically it doesn't really exist because it's got a very narrow set of the uh, guidelines as to what actually counts as right. stuff and what doesn't uh, basically it is too much of a risk to actually do it um right. 
uh, and also because of the fact that these days you can make highly, highly believable fakes, which is more cost effective, less risky and not illegal. Um, I mean, there's that whole thing in the, um, was it the 80s guinea or the pigs. 90s with the guinea pig films? Because they were made in the 80s, but I, I think Charlie Sheen got yep. freaked out by one and tried to have it investigated because he thought it was a real snuff film. Um, what an idiot. What an idiot. He only works in the business, right? <laughs> he doesn't understand what a cut is. Like, wait a second. There, there's a camera angle change when the arm gets cut? Oh, my gosh. I know, and you know, looking at it now, it's you can tell it's fake, but apparently it was sophisticated enough to uh, make people think that it was real back then. Um, and it was sophisticated enough that they had to have the making of part of it as well. At the end, they had to have the actress there, and they showed the fake hand that tightens up, which I think was brilliant. You know, oh yeah, I, I love. I actually love that scene in the making of when they cut and she just starts laughing, uh, as, yeah. as, as, while all her her body parts are just spread out around her, and she's just, ah, "This is great, crack." Yes. Yes. Yeah, but um. What I think is going on is, first of all, if you did actually possess a videotape like that, you would not leave it out in plain view the way the librarian did. Right. This was left out specifically for Jay and Gal to find it. And it was left out to infuriate them. But this is why I think this points to the fact that these are terrible contract killers, is that they are not familiar enough with death to recognize it as being fake. Um, now, I brought this up with you earlier, actually, the book Killing for Culture, which uh, yes. I recently bought and read. They brought up a thing um, that was going on with um, a very notorious video that was doing the rounds on shock sites in which an actual person died. And people yes. were all wondering, is this real? Is this fake? Most people were convinced it was fake because they said, OK, well, if you look at this, this and this, you know, um, I'd expect there to be more blood that looks like rubber the likes and they sent it to people who worked in actual film effects and they said no that's that's real that's um you can't get a prosthetic to do that but the fact is that you know you can make fake death look very real to the point where real death looks fake but i think if you were a really good contract killer you would know the difference I, I would think so. I, I would think perhaps uh, it's uh, uh, it's an interesting point because um, we're uh, in. Uh, it's this is getting so meta. My head is falling off. Uh, so we're talking about a movie that <laughs> was created with effects, but we're looking at it as if it's not a movie and it's real, and that they would be fooled by an effect. Okay, so. <laughs> how, uh, yes, I'll just say yes, and 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 sit over here and, and drool because uh, I'm not I'm starting to go nuts uh, thinking about this particular moment of surely they would notice if they were contract killers that it was fake, but it's 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 all fake, so I'm <laughs> confused. Uh, yeah, uh, I would think that they would know, uh, but I almost I counter that they know a little bit too much about death which is why they're asked to do this in the first place and that uh, i think gal is probably a little bit better than jay is jay's losing touch with reality mm -hmm. and he is uh, a liability the entire way but they were in the war they were they were soldiers 
And so they, they made a whole bunch of things no longer live. And well, that you, you is the, the problem. You would think, but I mean, there are, there have been actually cases where people have gone to war and not fired, not fired a single bullet into a human being, you know? Right, they don't usually get asked out of the dark uh, web to be contract killers, though. <laughs> I mean, that's, that doesn't usually, they might be security for Woody Allen or something. Yes, something like that. But then, you know, I think um, when you hear about cases of people being hired to kill somebody and then messing it up, there's a lot of hard men out there who want to think that they'd, right. be, they'd be effective um, hired killers. And, of course, I think Gay and Jal, they got into the army young and um, probably wanting to start a life for themselves. Um, you know, Jay, he was married and had a young son, needed to provide for them doesn't seem to have any qualifications or skills and actually seems a bit thick. Like, he seems like okay. a big old thicko, to be honest. Um, and I think he thought after he got out of the army, well, I've shot a gun. I could probably kill a person for money. So we got into it. And yeah, like you said, he's a liability. He has no control. He flies off the handle too easily. He's got no hold on his emotions. The people who hired him know this. And they are using it against him with this highly conspicuous fake. Because, I, again, I also think this is not the first time they've done this. I'd say that this tape might have been used as blackmail material as well, even though it's fake. You know, you'd right. really have to know what you're looking at to be able to pin it as fake. And because Jay is not smart enough and not experienced enough as a killer to know that it's fake, he flies off the handle. And he ends right. up taking out a whole bunch of different targets and goes against his agreement to actually just shoot somebody. He leaves a big paper trail and then they go on the hunt. But in all of this as well, um, Jay contracts blood poisoning. And at the very end as well, um, I haven't actually mentioned um, his wife. Um, right. And obviously spoilers for this film here, but... Um, him and the wife are on the outs from the very start of the film. She's upset because he's not providing for the family. Everything's very tense. They keep insulting each other. She wants out. But I think at this point in their relationship, you know, she's miserable. And she wants him gone. And she probably is incredibly resentful on him because he's not a very pleasant person. Um, but she also doesn't want to uproot their life and uproot her son and she's worried about the financial future. So I think when Gal's girlfriend, who is in on all of this, she convinces right. Shell to go in on this. But then about halfway through, Shell sees what's going on with her husband and she gets cold feet. She changes her mind. So she tries to do a runner with the kid and that goes horribly wrong. And the, right. the method in which it goes horribly wrong is part of her punishment for going against the cult. And it's also part of um, the the end of Jay's, um, Jay's journey, I suppose. Because technically he's alive at the end of the film, but you know he's not going to be for long. Right. I'm trying to remember the, the blood poisoning's coming out of left field for me. When 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 is that scene? Um, early on, he was cut with a blade um, to sign okay. the contract. And that was the yes. first thing that put him off. Um, I think he was infected with something. Earlier on okay. as well, um, when Gal's girlfriend Fiona was in the house, she took a tissue that had some of Jay's blood on it. Yes. 
Yes. And she took it with him. It looked like she was just, this was just a weird thing she was going. I think um, she brought it to the doctor that was also very clearly in on the whole thing and maybe figured out something that Jay was um, susceptible to in order to give him blood poisoning. And I'd say he probably contracted part of that for when he was actually in the doctor's office, getting that same infected wound examined. By the end of the film, like, it's spread everywhere. He's got a really bad case of blood poisoning. So, yeah, he's he's dead. He's dead. And not just dead, but he's emotionally devastated. He's exhausted. He's in bits. Um, so he, he's dead in more ways than one. So, Sinead, I must say that uh, this podcast will incriminate you at some point. I don't know what it will incriminate you for, but it's certainly, this is just the most incriminating thing. <laughs> the amount of thinking that's going on in this is, uh, is uh, you know, my jaw is on the ground. Oh, well, thank you. I'm going to put your name up on my little list of trophies the people that I have successfully <laughs> broken over the course of a single episode. Um, and this has actually been quite a... This episode is... I, I feel kind of bad because this episode I've had you talking for a very longer than average time. Um, and I, I, I It think, happens all the time with me. I'm a talker. Oh, well, I, I'm glad. But um, I, I, I feel like I may have damaged you slightly. <laughs> so it's, it's like... Uh... Uh, that challenge of the unconsciousness challenge on TikTok. It's it's safe as long as you don't go over a minute. I guess so, yeah. Or, you know, maybe this was my... This is part of the ploy. Uh, I'm starting to break I'm down part. your senses so that the next right. phase of the cult that's coming after you can start. I wouldn't be half surprised. It sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. I always knew they'd come back for me, those guys. <laughs> Okay, I think this is a really good place to close off the episode. Is there anything you'd like to say before we do? Uh, thank, thank you so much for having me on, Sinead. Uh, this has been a, a great bit of fun. And if anybody is interested in uh, hearing a little bit more of my blathering, uh, you can look at uh, for me anywhere that there are podcasts. Uh, Hellbent for Horror is my podcast about everything related to horror. And I talk about horror as art and social commentary. A lot of what uh, the kind of thing that was going on here is kind of what I do. And if you're interested in finding you know, something to uh, keep papers that are loose all around your desk, uh, something heavy on it. I have a book called Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. And uh, you can get that in any place that the, uh, the more spurious uh, booksellers are. Yeah, it's, it's on its way to me at some point. I think it may be somewhere over the Atlantic, uh, but I'm not sure. Um, uh, and in recommending your podcast, I have to say that I would recommend the episodes that you did about folk horror, which were particularly interesting for me. Um, not just necessarily as a fan of folk horror, but I do think you have a lovely way of talking about folk horror in particular and about pretty much every film. But um, yeah, folk horror, I think, is it's really the in thing and hopefully will be the in thing for the next few years. So, you know, I just can't get enough of it, really. Yeah, uh, there's a, uh, there's a new uh, documentary coming out. It just played South by Southwest. It's by uh, Kayla Janess, who is, uh, oh my goodness, she's written a book called The House of Psychotic Women and mm-hmm. a few others. And she also was the uh, 
the head of Rue Morgue out of uh, out of Canada, and it's oh my goodness, I'm I'm dropping the name. Uh, I may have to get back to you about that, but it's a long name, which is more like a, it's like a spell cast, and it's all about the history of folk horror, and it oh, won the uh, Midnighter Award uh, at the Audience Award uh, of this last South by Southwest, and I'm so ashamed that I can't remember the name of it, but it has not come out yet. Uh, it's going to be released at some point because it's exceptional, and it is uh, about folk horror from the very beginnings, and then how it has jumped the banks, that it's not just a, a UK phenomenon at this point. Oh, beautiful. Really, that's really, really great. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this podcast, and I deeply apologize for what I have done to you. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, this is my, my blood poisoning has uh, yet to really uh, inflict any pain for me. Maybe later tonight. Good stuff. Uh, well, this has been another episode of Crackpot Theories. I have been Sinead. He has been S.A. Bradley. And um, the truth is out there and it's a lot more sinister than you think. <laughs>